In this module, we turn to the fifth of six pillars of lifestyle medicine, and of the six, this might be the one that is more difficult to plainly see the connection to health. In fact, that is actually the topic, the power of connection. Specifically, we're talking social connections or relationships. And while this might seem at first to be less important compared to the others, by the end of this module, you'll hopefully see how this relates to the other lifestyle medicine areas and health and well-being, along with being able to recall factors that contribute to social connection, identify the obstacles to being socially connected, of which there are many, and hopefully you'll be able to compare and contrast the differences between loneliness and social isolation, along as how to promote social connection for yourself and others. Now, if we look at this from a theoretical perspective, researchers and psychologists have talked about social connections and relationships in well-being for some time. In fact, if you've taken any psychology courses, you're probably familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of basic human needs. And if you look right here, the only things more important than social connection are physiological needs like food, water, and safety needs like shelter. So belonging, love, and acceptance are pretty core to the human existence. In fact, back in one of the first modules, we talked about self-determination theory by Desi and Ryan and its impact on motivation in behavior change. Now, those researchers talked about three basic human needs, particularly as they relate to behavior, as being a need for competence, autonomy, and relatedness. And relatedness is just another way of saying connection. Relatedness is a need to have a close, affectionate relationship with others. We also talked previously about the proximal social environment and its effect on behavior. We talked about the social ecological model of change, that beyond just the individual factors that affect behavior change, relationships, community, and greater societal influences also affect behavior. And so you may be thinking that all this theory stuff is great, but what does all of this really mean for you then? Well, at its most basic, the definition of a connection is something that joins or connects two or more things. You could also consider it a situation in which two or more things have the same cause, origin, or goal. But for us, when we put this in a social context, the definition given in our textbook is actually really telling as to why this is so important. Social connection is defined by Bren Brown on page 351 of the text as the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment, and they derive sustenance and strength from that relationship. Now, using this definition, you could see how feeling a sense of social connection could influence then your thoughts and behaviors. Now, another researcher went so far as to liken connection to a living thing. Dr. Jane Dutton defined connection as the dynamic living tissue that exists between two people when there's some contact between them involving mutual awareness, and social interaction. 
So this will come back a little bit later as we discuss the quality of connections, because when we think of them as a living tissue, you can still have a connection with someone, but also have that connection be a little dysfunctional. Now, why is social connection so important to health? Well, as we saw with Maslow's hierarchy, relationships contribute even to physiologic and safety needs. For example, if you had to provide for your own food, water, shelter alone, this would drastically increase your stress. And in relationships, we can spread that burden and also share the benefits. Social circles also provide information that might be needed for change. It establishes norms and values. So in other words, what's accepted and acceptable um, what in that, in some cases, as we'll see in this module, that could be good or bad. But when it is good, it can generate an ongoing positive loop of social, emotional, and physical well-being. Now, you may be thinking this is all very touchy and feely. And so what does the science say about this? Well, we wouldn't be including it here if it wasn't supported in the evidence. And there is evidence of a biology of social connection. It actually starts in infancy, in fact, before birth. You may have heard of the love hormone or bonding hormone, sometimes called the cuddle hormone, and that's oxytocin. And the name oxytocin comes from the Greek for sharp and child childbirth because it is most well known for playing a role in uterine contractions during pregnancy and in milk letdown for breastfeeding of new mothers. But research shows that its influence goes far beyond pregnancy and a nursing mother. In fact, throughout life, activities that promote the release of oxytocin include holding hands, hugging, cuddling, making love, massaging, and even petting a dog. In fact, research in animal models shows that oxytocin may actually be part of the way that social interaction is seen as a reward by our brain, which then promotes more social interaction. So what they noted in mouse models was that oxytocin acts as a neurotransmitter in a particular part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, the reward center in the basal forebrain. And that in mice, when oxytocin receptors were blocked, that those mice showed decreased socializing activity. So we know that it somehow plays a role, but there's a lot that's kind of unknown because we also know that oxytocin has a very complex mechanism of action. There is evidence that oxytocin works with some of the other neurotransmitters we've talked about in previous modules. For example, oxytocin stimulates the release of GABA, and that then reduces neural activity. It has an inhibitory effect. So in other words, it kind of reduces anxiety. It lowers your inhibitions. Oxytocin also increases serotonin. That's one of those feel-good chemicals that is related to depression. And so when oxytocin increases serotonin, you're going to feel better. It may have a similar effect to an antidepressant. And Oxytocin has been shown to interact with dopamine, which is a well-known chemical in the reward system, kind of associated with pleasurable things. And it increases that reward 
and also has been connected with motivational associated behaviors. This might then explain why certain group programs have success beyond individual behavior change because of that interaction that with oxytocin increases dopamine for reward and also increasing motivated associated behaviors. Now, past studies on oxytocin suggest that in healthy people, the positive effects of oxytocin include increasing trust, reducing fear, improved emotional recognition, which we'll talk about here in a little bit because it is part of being able to recognize facial expressions and listening skills that are part of conversation and making a social connection with someone. Increased eye gazing. In other words, you're looking at the person for which you are having a social connection with at that moment. And here we go again, that facial expressions, which is so important for nonverbal communication and understanding beyond just what the words that a person is saying are expressing. Now, there is a little bit of a negative effect here, and that is that there is a preference for the social group that you have the largest tie to. So a negative part of this would be that you're more likely to favor the in-group at the expense of the out-group because you then have a greater, greater social connection with them. And so that becomes important as we consider in this day and age some of the issues with racism um, and all of that may have a biological connection here with the oxytocin hormone. Now remember that I mentioned dogs? Even for those who live alone, a companion animal may be beneficial. So in research, people with pets had a significantly lower heart rate and blood pressure at resting compared to the resting baseline level. And that during times of stress that was tested using mental arithmetic, they had a significantly smaller increase from baseline in heart rate and blood pressure levels. There's also a physiological effect of petting a dog that an individual has a companion bond with and that blood pressure goes down. So a physiologic response with petting a dog that you is your companion and you actually have a relaxation effect. There's also a slight blip in blood pressure in that greeting moment. And you kind of, if you've had a pet, you know this moment when you walk in the door and there is the greeting of this companion animal, that you have a sense of excitement. And that then, in addition to the relaxation produced later with petting that dog, you're going to have this physiological interaction. And what's interesting here is that it's actually measurable. In individuals who have a companion relationship with a dog, that there is an increase in urinary oxytocin for their owners. And a little bonus is that owners who walk their dogs end up getting more physical activity. So you remember I mentioned this back in the physical activity module as a way to sort of get over the hump of increasing exercise, it could be an enjoyable activity if it is seen as spending time with your dog. So the bottom line here is our brains are wired for social connection. And for behavior change counseling, we need to make use of the social 
brain. There are all kinds of different parts of the brain that are necessary for social interaction. And they're kind of different areas and that working in concert actually increases some of your cognitive um, ability. We've talked about some of these before, the prefrontal cortex, that thinking and reasoning part. We've talked quite a bit about the amygdala and that emotional area. We also talked about listening, so the auditory portion. All of these areas, in addition to understanding facial expressions or nonverbal communication, they're all a big part that we need to consider as why the social interaction can be important with promoting behavior change. Now, we can also agree here that it's not always that easy. There are many barriers to social connection, and one of them is technology. While you could argue that an increase in technology has allowed us to keep up with people who are geographically distant, so using phones, using social, excuse me, social media and email, but... It is also true that many of these connections fostered by technology are not high quality connections. More on high quality connections in a moment. But high quality connections use all those areas of the brain that we just talked about. And many of the connections fostered by technology do not use all of those areas of the social brain. Other barriers to social connection, some people just lack self-confidence or interpersonal skills to feel good in interaction. Sometimes there is anxiety um, related to social interaction. Sometimes there's just a general reluctance. And some of this has even become more rampant as we've been forced to socially isolate in some ways because of the recent pandemic and even be physically distant from each other, having to use some of those technology-based forms of social interaction that don't use all of the brain for high quality connection. Some people just have poor communication skills and that is, you know, in in relationship to interpersonal skills. And there's a fear of change. So particularly among older adults who for whom technology may not have been their first go-to in the pandemic to keep up with social connections, that change may have had a, a deleterious effect on their social connection with friends and family. And surroundings, particularly for those in neighborhoods or areas where they are isolated physically, where there's no opportunity. Maybe they live alone. Maybe they are in a rural area where they're not in a neighborhood where they could see individuals even with being socially distanced, for example. So. These are all barriers to positive social relationships, and they're things we need to be aware of because they could be things we could actively seek to change in helping others promote and foster positive social relationships. Now, the thing to talk about here before moving on is when connection doesn't happen, what does that mean? What is the opposite of connection? Well, it's disconnection, separation, isolation. And it's important to distinguish this from the subjective feeling of that. So there is a difference between loneliness and social isolation. Loneliness is a subjective feeling. It is a mental state, an inability to connect or communicate with others. And there are connections with emotional, physical, and social factors that contribute to this. And the reason that I point this out is because from a objective standpoint, you as a practitioner or clinician may not perceive that 
loneliness should be possible in a given individual because from your perspective, you may not see as though there are factors that you can observe. That doesn't mean that a person is not still feeling lonely, even if they are in a family unit, in a neighborhood, have physical connections with others. Whereas social isolation is a physical state, a voluntary or involuntary absence of contact with other individuals. And in this case, it's different than solitude. So someone could choose to be socially isolated and actually find solitude in it. But in the case of social isolation, these individuals are alone and it is having a negative effect. They're not enjoying it and it is having a negative effect on them. In fact, the research indicates that there are multiple issues with social isolation that rival even some of the traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease. For example, in 2013, there was a pretty large study involving more than 15,000 individuals using a national survey here in the U.S. And it used the social network index. And there's it's a little bit of information on that in the module, um, in the chapter, I, I mean, in the textbook. And it measures isolation. And what they did was take those social network index scores and looked at predictive mortality among men and women. And they found that among men, low social network index scores had mortality similar to that of smoking. That's kind of huge. We know we've talked about that smoking is a cardiovascular risk factor. And we'll talk a little bit more about smoking in a future module. But to think that just low social network scores could have mortality similar to smoking, that's kind of a big deal and something that's often overlooked. In women, social isolation has a predictive mortality similar to both smoking and high blood pressure, another cardiovascular risk factor. And this was supported by an earlier study in 2010 that found among known coronary artery disease patients that those who were socially isolated, they had almost two and a half times the risk of cardiac death compared to their peers, in other words, other coronary artery disease patients who were not socially isolated. So you see here that while we may overlook it, this is really important. Evidence in the research indicates that a low quality and quantity of social ties is linked with a whole host of cardiovascular risk factors. Development and progression of heart disease, recurrent heart attack, atherosclerosis, which is what tends to lead to a heart attack, and high blood pressure. It also affects cancer and cancer recovery, having low quality and quantity of social ties. It also is related to inflammation, wound healing, and an impaired immune system. Now the opposite is also true. The impact of social networks could be a positive thing. There are hundreds of studies over many years of research showing that social support benefits both mental and physical health. In fact, I've included a recent review article in the module this week for you to read on the positive benefits of social interaction to health. In fact, 
This article goes over and summarizes the evidence from numerous studies that show that social support and connection can help to allow individuals to maintain a healthy body weight, or BMI. It can also help individuals to control their blood sugar, or hemoglobin A1c, which is a marker of long-term blood glucose control. It can improve cancer survival. Having social support and connection can decrease cardiovascular mortality, something we just mentioned, and improve overall mental health. So how does all this work? How can just feeling connected have an effect? Just positive social interactions benefit health? Well, there are some physiological explanations for this. It's a big one to think that you can reduce blood pressure heart rate, and stress hormones, because we talked in a previous module how detrimental an increase in heart rate, blood pressure, and stress hormones can be to your overall physiology. So essentially, social support reduces the impact of stress, which is why we mentioned it back in that stress module. Sometimes we avoid social interaction when we get really busy and stressed, but it is true we should actually seek that out during times of stress as a way to reduce those stress hormones and effect on our physiology. Social interaction can also influence our sense of personal control and enhance the belief we can control our lives. And it benefits our mental health in concert with everything else. There is symbolic meaning in our social relationships. And this you probably understand at your core, but maybe didn't necessarily express or bring to the forefront of your mind. There is symbolic meaning in formal social relationships, social ties like marriage, like parenthood, peer groups, your racial and ethnic identity, because these provide a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. In fact, in those cases of more formal roles, like spouse, husband, wife, parent, friend, sister, brother, these roles have a identity and responsibility linked to them that can provide that purpose and meaning that gives us a reason to get up in the morning, that gives us a reason to move forward and improve our lives. So as if we didn't need more evidence, as we talked about previously, we can benefit the immune system by increasing social ties. In fact, it's been shown to reduce inflammatory markers. We talked about reducing stress hormones. That's part of the endocrine system, reducing that sympathetic nervous system activity and reducing your cardiovascular risk. So these anticipated and existing stressors can all be reduced by fostering a social connection. And it's not something we tend to think about. As I said, when we get really busy and stressed, we tend to reduce our social connections. But things like volunteering, things like reaching out just to have a conversation can reduce stress. And it's not just our physiological responses that benefit from that social interaction. It can also influence our behaviors, good or bad. Social ties influence health behaviors by providing information and creating social norms. For example, a spouse could monitor, inhibit, promote, regulate, facilitate health behaviors. But it's also true that the opposite could be true. It could provide a hurdle for behavior change or a challenge. 
You may have experienced yourself circumstances where a person who is a close social tie sabotages progress of yourself or another person. This might be in the form of a food pusher. You're at a social gathering and they're like, oh, come on, have a piece of cake. Oh, come on, have another beer, have another drink, have another this or that. They increase temptations. They may try to convince you. They may even belittle you for taking a different approach than is the social norm in the group. Oh, come on, you're only going to eat that rabbit food. And so these could be negative in some cases. But you can also help individuals and in yourself recognize these and perhaps work within them or around them. Because strained relationships, if social support is not there for someone who wants to change, this could be a negative and it then spreads through those other lifestyle areas. For example, strained relationships could be a reason for declining health behaviors. The stressors of a relationship, for example, marital strain can not only take a toll on the physical health and mental health, but all of that together causes changes like increased heart rate and blood pressure, increased stress hormones, and could even lead to changing your food consumption, more junk foods, for example, increasing drinking, smoking, and other behaviors that we know are risk factors for poor health outcomes. And actually, this is really interesting research that confirms this. By showing that the more friends and family you have, that are overweight, for example, example, the more likely you are to be also. So there was a researcher who looked into the spread of obesity across social networks. And when we look at why this happened, they found that social connections and networks influence the perceptions of social norms about the acceptability of being overweight or obese and the related behaviors. In other words, your social network may influence you to feel that it's okay not to exercise because nobody else is, or that there's judgment in you making a change to exercise or eat healthy, that it's okay to eat junk foods by surrounding you with junk foods, or as I said before, belittling you for not doing those same behaviors along with your social network. But what was really, really interesting about this in fact, they called it contagion mechanisms because it's not just that you're geographically close to someone, physically close to someone that has this influence. Among those social networks, not only is it members who are socially close, it goes beyond geography. In other words, you don't have to live close to someone to still experience that effect of the social connection. And one of the other supporting studies with this was some research by some of these same individuals who found that even in a Facebook network, and this research itself, this study in particular, was done among those your own age and college students, that even in a Facebook network, they looked at data and found clusters of both obese and non-obese individuals that were linked by nothing more than their social network. And so you can see here, and in this case, squares are men and circles are women, and the color of the dot represented their um, weight status, normal, underweight, overweight, or obese. And you can see here that in these individuals, regardless of whether they were geographically or physically close to each other, they were still influenced by 
norms and acceptable behaviors among this social network that was not even based on being physically close to each other. So what does all of this mean? If we want to consider social support to help with behavior change, it may take a recognition that our social networks can influence those we don't even realize. Now, one of the researchers involved in this work on the power of social networks, this contagion mechanisms of social networks, he himself decided he would lose five pounds because he realized that his own weight would influence his son's weight, his son's friend's weight, and his son's mom's, son's friend's mom's weight. So that goes out and out and out as our social connection widens. And this is true that other research has confirmed if a friend gains weight, there is a chance that you will also gain weight. So you can also make the positive, the flip side of that to your benefit. If you want to make a positive change, get your friends and family involved. Speak out of your desire to make a change. Because if they get on board with you, whether it is joining you in that progress or at least supporting your efforts, in in other words, not hindering them, then you are likely to be more successful. And they may even, whether at that same time or down the road, be more likely to change their behaviors as well. And this goes beyond things like diet and exercise and weight. We'll talk in a future module that this is even true for other areas such as positivity and happiness. That can spread through social networks as well. So next week we'll talk about positive psychology and how this can all help influence your own behavior and others. So what kind of social ties should we encourage in people? Now, uh, Dr. Hallowell in his book Connect suggests 12 vital ties that you should seek and foster. And some of these are ones that we already know and that makes sense. Your family of origin, your immediate family, friends and community, your work, mission, or purpose. But some of these have been shown in research but are probably less well known. They may be logical to you, but you may not realize they're actually shown in research to influence behavior. One of those is beauty and nature. In fact, Getting out and enjoying time outside has been shown to reduce stress. And in those who exercise outside, for example, there is an even greater benefit. A little bit about knowing and a little bit in exploring your family of origin, history, your genealogy, for example, fosters a sense of connection and personal meaning and purpose in your life. Others, like pets, we've talked about not only as it relates to exercise, but also just to releasing oxytocin, forming a connection. So if you live alone and it is safe to have a pet, that can be really beneficial for an individual to avoid loneliness. It is also true of more formal connections. Institutions, organizations, one I'll talk about in a moment is volunteering. You can connect by helping others, and that is a huge boost to your own feeling of self-worth. It's also interesting when you look at research as it relates to socializing and dementia. In fact, cognitive functioning may increase because of all those areas that are needed for a high quality social connection. So participating in a discussion in person with an individual requires a high level of executive functioning. There are all different 
areas of the brain that are involved in that act of socializing with others. You have to listen so that you can understand. You may even have to remember portions of a conversation so that you can refer back to them. And again, that's part of reflective listening, which we talked about earlier as a motivational interviewing technique. Being present in the moment so that you can respond back to individuals and show that you're listening and that you're empathizing and understanding. And even, this is an interesting one, inhibiting inappropriate responses. And so in the case of a coaching conversation, this would be about not bringing yourself into it, but yet, you know, not being judging in that conversation, but yet listening and empathizing with that person, trying to understand their perspective. And so research has shown that social interaction can facilitate increased cognitive performance. So a lot we've talked about here. What if we take a step back and look at the big picture? You might see this link back to that social ecological model that I talked about at the beginning of this lecture. We talked about how there is scientific evidence that supports the following premises. It goes beyond the individual. Social ties affect mental health, physical health, health behaviors, and mortality risk. And so social ties can be a resource that can be harnessed to promote population health. Social ties are a resource that should be protected as well as promoted. And you can benefit beyond that target individual. So this gets back to what those researchers talked about with social networks, that both in the home and in relationships, and even those that aren't geographically close. You can influence the others just by getting at a target individual because they take that home and they relate it. And you can, this makes sense to you if you think about how parents, for example, can influence the eating behaviors and exercise behaviors of children. Now, social ties have an immediate effect and a long-term effect, both on the individual and those in their social network. And this is, again, connects back to my example of parents. Even with parents and children, the things that they're introduced to early in life can influence the decisions they make later, which is why taking a family and social support approach to health behavior change can be really important. Now, the recognition of the opposite is true. Social ties when individuals are overburdened, strained, conflicted, or social ties that are abusive can undermine health. So the costs and benefits of social ties can influence a lot of behavior and they are not distributed equally in the population. They vary by age, gender, socioeconomic status, socioeconomic status, and race. There is more evidence now than ever, particularly with the pandemic, both with the recognition that certain populations have various risk because of some of these factors like age, gender, socioeconomic status, race, and ethnicity, and that there are varied resources available within those social networks, that they are going to have perhaps a greater burden when stressors come around, as in the case of the pandemic, we were able to observe that in certain populations. They had a greater effect of these stressors. 
Now, what does the research tell us about improving health and wellness directly as related to social networks? There was a really interesting study done in 2013, published in the um, Journal of Family Medicine, that said that we could harness this effect of social networks. And they looked at peer coaching of individuals with diabetes. So rather than having the patient um, receive this information from the healthcare professional, what if we increase their social support by having a peer, an individual in their social network, be the one providing information and support. So they took almost 150 individuals that had an elevated hemoglobin A1C. That's a marker of increased blood sugar over time. And they had them assigned to a peer coach group as opposed to around 150 similar individuals assigned to usual care, typically with a healthcare professional. Now these coaches, peer coaches, were from the community, as I said, peers, and they were put through a 36-hour health coaching training program with an actual evaluation to make sure they were able to put these um, things into place. And they had some of the same training that I've tried to bring to your awareness, um, active listening, non-judgmental communication, providing social and emotional support, in addition to the informational component here providing information on self-management skills for diabetes, lifestyle change, medication understanding and adherence, navigating the clinic where they receive their health care, and accessing community resources. And I feel like this should have been in much larger print here. Their results indicated that in the group that received peer coaching, almost half of the individuals in that group dropped their hemoglobin A1C, in other words, had better blood glucose control after that six month of the study. Whereas less than a third of the individuals in the usual care group had that same level of dropping their blood glucose management or their, their level of blood glucose over that six months. So it had a positive effect. And there are also other studies indicating some of these same results. So positive social support can have a direct effect. How can we enhance this person, any person's social connection and decrease loneliness? Well, we can help individuals accept others as they are. We can help individuals adopt a positive approach, an uplifting attitude. In fact, that'll be the focus of the next module, being positive. I mentioned before that connection with getting a roommate or pet, particularly for those who are lonely, for those with whom it is economically feasible to have a pet and they are physically able to take care of that pet, that may be a good solution to avoiding feelings of loneliness. I mentioned before that helping others, and sometimes again, we may feel like we don't have time to put one more thing on our calendar. But just like with meditation, mindfulness, and other forms of stress reduction, it is true that keeping this in the schedule, putting this in someone's schedule, may actually help them be better at adjusting to stressors and have greater resiliency. Because helping others helps us feel better. So seeking out volunteering opportunities. This can be really important and also put our own stressors into perspective. We may feel as though we have a lot on our plate dealing with work, home, school, 
you know, all, you know, getting all of our tasks done. But volunteering at a soup kitchen, for example, or a shelter, you might realize that those stressors that you felt were absolutely overwhelming are nothing as it relates to the stressors in certain other portions of the population and what they are dealing with. And so that can be a really good way to give back and also kind of put things in perspective for yourself. Now we'll spend a little time here in the next part of this module talking about developing quality relationships because identifying that there is something going on and whether that is feelings of all-out loneliness or just an identification that something needs to change because of high levels of stress this can be an indicator that it's important to address something, that something needs to change. And it's not just about fostering all kinds of connections. It's really important, as I said, to fostering high quality connections. Now we talked about Jane Dutton previously. She was the one who had that interesting definition of connection as almost like a living thing. Now she also compares high quality versus low quality connections to blood vessels. And since you know we're in an exercise science setting here, we can talk about this and this may resonate with you. That if we think about connections as blood vessels, a healthy blood vessel that connects various parts of the body in a similar way, a high quality connection between two individuals allows for the transfer of vital nutrients. It's flexible, strong, and resilient. In other words, it doesn't have a disease state that's going to have a dysfunctional response during a stressful time. So that is what can happen in the case of a low quality connection. It is a diseased vessel. And in those cases, the tie is still there. The blood vessel still exists. But in those social contexts, those people communicate, they interact, they may even be involved in interdependent work, such as a family connection or a work connection. But that connective tissue is damaged. It may have plaque and atherosclerosis. And in those cases, when a stressor comes to fruition, it comes into play in that individual's response, that could mean that there is a little bit of death in, in, in that interaction. In other words, that stressor leads to more dysfunction and more stress rather than resilience. Now you may have experienced this before yourself in the sense that there are certain individuals who you don't walk away from an interaction feeling positive. And some people will use the term toxic relationships. And so if we're looking to foster high quality positive relationships, perhaps we, sh perhaps we should consider what that means. High quality relationships have a greater emotional carrying capacity. So in other words, you can express more emotion and that means positive and negative and feel safe in doing so. And in those high quality relationships or connections, you feel that there is an ability to bounce back. That resilience is there. After setbacks or stressors, it is relatively easy to come back to a positive place. And that is because that relationship has generativity and openness to new ideas and influence, as well as that ability to deflect behaviors that would normally shut down other low quality relationships. So a high quality relationship, when you achieve that with an individual, those people experience a subjective feeling of vitality and positivity, being alive. You have a heightened sense of positive energy. With a high quality connection, you have an increased sense of positive regard, 
a feeling for yourself and for others of being known and being loved. And there's a feeling of mutuality. Both parties in that connection feel engaged. They're actively participating. It's not a one-way street, in other words. It is not sucking the energy from one individual and only benefiting the other. Now, this is a reason that social connection helps with stress resilience. The connection between relationships and resilience is that the ability of individuals, groups, and organizations to absorb that stress arises from the challenges, not only to recover functioning back to a normal level, but to learn and grow from that situation. And this is an important part because this is what allows stress to bounce back more quickly and then perhaps learn and grow from it. There is growth in relationships that are high quality because you can emerge stronger than before from stressors. Now, resilience then, as we talked about with the stress module, depends a great deal on the existence of quality interpersonal relationships. So this means that both for yourself and for others in a professional capacity as a practitioner, as a future professional in the healthcare field, you want to, for yourself and your own stress, stress resilience to avoid burnout, you want to foster relationships that are caring, that there is a high quality of emotional expression. Remember both positive and negative. You can express that. That is part of a building block of resilience. So in addition to that, that growth mindset, learning and improving, this allows individuals to learn from emotions because you can express both positive and negative, that growth orientation. So you'll find that both for yourself in future practice and your own well-being and your ability to promote this with others. So here are some suggestions. As an example of a high quality connection for the person that you are working with as a healthcare professional, you would want to convey presence, being mindful, paying attention. This is why starting a conversation with an individual where you're in that present moment can be really important and being genuine, speaking and reacting honestly, no fronts. This allows you then to have that person feel safe to express emotions, both positive and negative, fostering that growth environment. And then communicating affirmations, searching for that positive core in another individual. We talked about appreciative inquiry in previous modules, and it was kind of part of our learning about motivational interviewing. When we talked about the ORS skills, remember we talked about open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries as skills that are important to having an effective coaching conversation. So affirmations are really important in Helping people recognize the positives because we have a tendency to be down on ourselves during times of stress. And so you might be able to, in your own relationships and in a coaching professional relationship with a client or patient, be able to point out the positives that they don't themselves see in any given situation. And that requires then effective listening on your part in order to provide empathy and reflect these things back to a person that you observe, those positive things that you observe in that person, you have to have effective listening skills, which is why I've asked you as part of this class to do practice coaching conversations. Because 
empathic reflective listening is difficult. It takes time and practice and it's not always a normal natural part of our everyday conversations. And so focusing on their agenda, not yours during a conversation can really be an important part of reflective empathic listening. These all together are what lead to supportive communication. It allows your communication to be non-judgmental. And that means you may need to make requests again rather than telling them information. So remember providing direction and guidance, not criticism or threats. We talked about using the evoke, provide, uh, or elicit, provide, elicit framework. Not telling people what to do, but rather asking. Would it be okay to give you some information? Or tell me what you know about this or that. And then would you like some more information about, what can I tell you that you'd like to know more about this or that? Because then it is not seen as a top-down telling them what to do. Instead, it is guidance rather than criticism, threats, or telling them what they're doing wrong. So remember, this is all part of that coach approach. This relationship you could have with even people in your own personal life, but also in a professional capacity as a healthcare provider. This fostering connection is true of both your connection with the patient or client and helping them foster that in their own lives as a way of providing stress resiliency and positive health behaviors in their own environment so that their behavior change is more successful. So, what would this look like if you were to make a prescription? You've noticed we've been having a prescription at the end of all these major lifestyle areas because you could use a prescription in the same way for a pharmaceutical treatment as you can with a lifestyle behavior change treatment. So what if we took this in that same fit prescription, frequency, intensity, time, and type? You could encourage someone to cultivate high quality connections. Ask them one day a week to have a deep connection, conversation with an individual, maybe calling somebody or meeting for lunch, having a family dinner for at least 30 minutes with a friend or family member to connect. Or just in somebody who perhaps is seeking an increase in social contact. Maybe for three days a week, ask them to make a new connection. In less than five minutes, consider when you're out, striking up friendly conversation with someone you don't know at work, at the store, or a social event. You could even encourage people to consider volunteering, seeking out that type of social connection that allows them to help others, making their community a better place and allowing them to put into perspective the stressors that they perceive they have. So there are so many ways that you yourself can work on positive, high quality social connections and helping others to find those in their own life so that they can promote positive health behavior change and maintain it in their own environments and communities. So for more information on using positive psychology to help with this, tune in to the next module.